learn the word. Yeah. Time to dig into the word and see what we're gonna, what God's gonna show us different today. Amen. And always eager and willing and ready to learn something new. And you know where we are to know the word. The only way to know the word is to open the book and read it. Put yourself in Sunday school class to learn the word. And that's what we're here for. We're going to receive something new, see what God has for us. And Brother Sean, would you pray this morning? Lord, we thank you. We come into your courts this morning with thanksgiving and praise. We ask that your Holy Spirit be loosened within every aspect of this church, that your, that your plans and your purposes come forth, Father, that you use us for your glory. Help us to be teachable today. Give us a teachable spirit. Unharden our hearts and allow us your word to go forth within us so that it can go forth into this world and do what you want done. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. And we give you honor today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Dismiss the classes. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Got a good lesson this morning. Page 16 in your study guides. title is Puzzling <coughs> Sayings of Jesus. Central truth is that Christ desires us to discern, understand, and apply his teachings. And I underline those three words, discern, <coughs> understand, and apply, because often we hear about understanding and applying, but not so much about discerning. And I think that's a, that's a very important aspect of Christianity and, and then finding truth. Uh, discernment with prayer, discernment with study, okay? When we talk about discerning, I think sometimes people, um, they think it's some sort of like um, supernatural answer. It's like, God told me this. I'm okay with that, but only to a certain extent. And the reason why is not only have I been wrong in the past about voices we hear, <laughs> that we claim to be God, but God expects us to discern, but along with discerning, study. Study, look for it, find it. If God tells you something or God speaks something to you, study and go find it and make sure what you're hearing is correct. Amen. Make sure that it's in the right context. Make sure that, that what you're hearing is, is, uh, is applicable for life. Um, obviously, the next step is, is, is apply it. But those, those things correlate together. Um, I think it's risky if you say that God told me whatever. He told me this. He revealed the truth to me about his word. But you can't actually find the truth in his word? I don't know. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> to be all in on that? I mean, you think about that. It's like, well, God told me this. It's like, I, I've, uh, I've had some experiences, not only with myself, and I always throw myself on the chopping block because I'm the, I've, I've experienced the fall of saying God told me something and then buy into it so wholeheartedly that I didn't care what you said. I didn't care what the Bible said. I just know God said that, and this, that's what's going to happen. Years later, after looking at my investment of faith and self and time and all these things, of this high expectation of God said this, this is what's going to happen, find out he wasn't even talking about what I was thinking. And I regretted not studying the word and spending some time trying to understand what he was trying to tell me. Amen. And discerning what is God saying here. So... Um, discernment, understanding, and applying. 
uh, under Let's Get Started, the teachings of Jesus sometimes left his disciples wondering exactly what he meant. <laughs> Studying the whole of Scripture gives us some advantage in interpreting his words, yet there are concepts that continue to puzzle everyone, including those who have spent their lives studying the Bible. This lesson looks at some of Jesus' more difficult teachings and sheds light on them through the searching of other scriptures. Jesus often taught using hyperbole, an intentional and obvious exaggeration designed to emphasize a given point. For example, Jesus said, if, you, if uh, your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. How many are familiar with that scripture? Yeah. I am too. The, the interesting part about that is, is that I have heard many people refer to that on a literal level. If it gets bad enough, you know, I guess it would make sense to go ahead and gouge your eye out. Okay, hold on a second here. That's, that's, that doesn't even make sense. And we were talking about this. You remember, we were talking about this last week. Remember, the Bible uses expression, and then it also uses literal. But you've got to discern and separate the two. You've got to study to know exactly what angle it's coming from. So he said, if your eye calls you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. He did not intend his hearers to take his words literally by practicing self-mutilation. Read the verse in context, and you will discover that he was teaching something about how important it is to allow nothing into our lives that would keep us from entering the kingdom of God. So we can all agree, though, that gouging your eye out is probably a pretty big deal. So it's kind of like using hyperbole. It's kind of like using shock factor. It's like he's using this on a level that would just kind of shock the, the, the reader. Or the listener. It's like if if, um, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You think people were paying attention once he said that? Like, what? What are you talking about? It gets your attention. And that was the intent of it. Not the literal application of it. But it's, I'm trying to get your attention. And the contrast of how bad sin is and what actually is going to happen if you allow it in your life. And how important it is to get away from it. So that's why he was using this on such an extreme level. And what I think is so um, neat, I guess that's the way I want to term it, it's neat to me that it was, it was really wild for him to say that back then. It's really wild to hear him say that now. Still, after 2,000 years, it still applies. And it actually even still brings a bit of a shock factor. You think, wow, that's a big deal. Couch your eye out. That's a, I, I need that eye. You're right. You do, but he didn't mean it literally. He meant pay attention to the sin. Pay attention to it. Well, well we obviously we know the eye is important. It's an important tool. We, we have to have it. But I think we might spend too much time when we read that scripture emphasizing on the eye. It's like, oh, wow, he said, gouge God, the eye out. Oh, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You're talking about the sin. Pay attention to the sin aspect of it. Okay. Um. Read the verse in context, and I, uh, he was teaching something about how important it was to allow nothing into our lives that would keep us from entering the kingdom of God. So we all want to enter the kingdom of God, right? Amen. Okay, so yeah, keep that in context. As you read the passages uh, covered in this lesson, take a moment to ponder this question. What is Jesus trying to say about how a true disciple should live as his people? What is he saying about the kingdom of God? He will, or even about himself. All right, so... He's saying ponder the questions. You ever, you ever ponder something in God's Word? Amen. Not just read God's Word from, um, how do I, I don't know how to say it exactly. Not reading God's Word from a storybook perspective. Like, tonight we're going to read about Job. It's great. It's a story. It's a great story, too. But 
do Christians take the time to actually ponder what's being said? Because if, if you and I don't take actually time to think about what's being said, then we're not actually going to get what's being said. We're just going to pass over and it's going to look like a story to us. Mm -hmm. You think about, I think that's permissible when you're a kid and you're in Sunday school, because I have a lot of fond memories growing up and being in Sunday school. And I didn't grow up in church, but the times that I did go, um, when I went to church uh, as a kid, they would teach me about Jonah and the whale. That was a cool story. You know, as a wheel, as, as a kid, the whale is like a shock factor too. It's like, wow, the whale swallowed a guy. Being on a storybook level is permissible because you need to learn those things. But as you grow up, the meaning changes. It's not so much now about a guy being swallowed by a whale as much as it is a guy running from God. And so the application takes on a different meaning. If we still read the word like we did when we was a kid in Sunday school, then we're not we're missing the point. We're not getting it. And so we can't, you have to spend some time pondering God's word. I would say, and I've shared this with a couple of people, I would say that's probably the thing that I desire the most is time with God just to ponder. I don't like to be bothered when I'm in my time. I don't like to be bothered at all because I like to think about what I'm actually reading. And I don't even care. I don't even have like a, um, that's me personally, I don't have like a, today we're going to read a chapter. That's not the way I, that's not the way I personally read. I read until it clicks and I'll stop and I want to think about this. Like, okay, I don't want to miss this. I'm kind of picky about those kind of things because I like to digest it. I like to really get into it. I have literally opened my Bible before and come to one place and I read one verse and I just begin to ponder and I begin to talk to God about it. Sometimes I wept. Sometimes I rejoiced. And I felt like whatever I read in that one scripture was everything I needed for that day. This is what I need. And you think, well, that's, you should read more. You're right. Maybe, maybe I should. But I think the point is not the amount of reading that you do, but you understand what you're reading. Amen. And not just on a on a, um, a literal, in a literal context, like literary. Not that just you're understanding the words, but that you're getting how it applies to you in your, your life. Mm -hmm. So if that means today that I meet, read a scripture and I get it, and I, whoa, hold on a second. I don't want to move any farther than this because I may actually miss the value of the scripture. Just to meet a quota. Are you with me? Like a quota, you know what I mean by quota, right? You meet your quota reading today. You've heard me say that before, and I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to turn your, your study time into one scripture. I'm simply saying that if all our study time is based on a quota, are you really learning anything? I mean, that's a good question to ask. Mm -hmm. If it's all based on quota and it's all based on time frames and it's all based on chapters, do we really, are we really reading what he's and understanding what he's trying to tell us? I don't know about you, but I've missed quite a bit when I do it that way. Amen. We're just talking about, you know, the fish. You have to understand that God made the big fish. Yeah. And the reason and the reason why that he did and and it swallowed him up was because of disobedience. Mm-hmm. That was the reason. Yeah. It, it's a really a miracle but if you stop and think about it he was still alive for three days yeah the fact that he was alive was a miracle yeah. and it talks about him being in 
the, the bars and that's uh, mm -hmm. the uh, bones of the fish mm -hmm. that swallowed him. Uh, yeah, he even used the word. All, it was all done because of his disobedience. Yeah. I think at one point he even referred to uh, Sheol, which biblically is defined as hell. So that's what he was saying. I'm in hell. I'm in Sheol. That's a good point, Jim. Okay, let's read our scriptures uh, this morning. Got quite a bit of information I want to cover. Uh, page 17. Sean looked at me earlier, and, and I could just tell by the look on his face he wanted to read this morning. <laughs> Go ahead. Luke 16, 1. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose uh, manager was accused of wasting his possessions. The master condemned the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. Matthew 5:39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. John 18:22. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I say something wrong, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Acts 23, 2. At this point, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, replied Brothers, I, do not I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Romans 13.3 For the rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Matthew twenty four thirty. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from, the, from one end of the heavens to the other. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have come, have happened. Very good. Amen. All right, section one, the shrewd steward. In the parable in Luke 16, one through nine, we encounter an economic situation that was common in Bible times. A steward or household manager of a rich man was told to give an account for his management dealings and learn that he was losing his job. Immediately he assessed his situation and options and concluded he was too weak to do physical labor and his pride prohibited begging. The steward made a plan to ensure that others would treat him favorably once he lost his current position. However, his plan seems to be, or it seems a bit devious and dishonest. Going to his master's debtors, he settled their debts for a fraction 
of what was owed. Apparently, his duties allowed him to make such deals. While the settlements were not in the best interest of his master, the debtors became indebted to him, thereby increasing the chances that he might find employment as a steward for one of them. What we are told in Luke 16, 8 through 9 might shock us. The master praised the steward even though he acted in a way that seems devious. Now, if you don't read to the end of the story, you might get confused on this because it would almost seem like it was a contradiction to Jesus' teachings. It's like, well, hold on a second. What is he saying? He's, he's commending him? He's commending him for selling the debts at a fraction of a cost or settling them? He said, why? It is important to note that the master was not praising him for his deviousness, but because he acted shrewdly. All right, so you got to know what shrewdly means. Shrewdly is uh, sharp powers of judgment. That's what shrewd means. And it's using uh, judgment to uh, secure your health and wellness. Uh, you ever heard of a quick thinker? That person thinks quick. You've heard that before? Well, to, to be shrewd, you may think of shrewd was like being rude. It, not really. It, it literally means to, to take care of yourself with your own judgmental powers. And so within the context of the scripture, it says, is that it can be difficult for us to separate the true, but we must keep in focus the purpose and meaning of the parable. The commendation is not for doing something that is inherently wrong, but for being shrewd or good judgment or using judgmental powers. The steward responded to a crisis by using the resources at his disposal to prepare for his future. Jesus explained the seemingly strange commendation by exhorting us to make use of mammon of unrighteousness for eternal purposes. Well, that if you read all the way to the end, then it swings it in another direction. It swings it where we start to understand it a little bit differently. It, said, it says that wealth and resources are to be used, not hoarded. All right, let's just stop right there for a minute because I want to talk about that. Wealth and resources, and that's actually, that is actually the lesson that is being taught here, is resources, what you have, and then using it in a way that is beneficial for the future, or in, in our instance, kingdom, all right? So when, when this lesson teaches that wealth and resources are to be used, not hoarded, a lot of times that's hard to un, for us to understand. That's hard to get because, let me go back. We'll go back to, um, in our history, let's go back to the Great Depression. And then we have family that lived through the Great Depression. You come up, and that next generation was taught certain things about how to use resources, and to keep things, and to make sure that you had what you needed when you needed. This is why you see in a, uh, in a time, in an era, where everything is disposable, can we agree that they've created everything to be disposable today? This is why your great-grandparents or your grandparents were so stickler about saving everything. This is why they would seem to a lot of our, our current generation as being hoarders. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be funny. I'm not knocking anybody. I'm saying that teaching, though, come from an era where they didn't have anything and they were poor. So when, when that... When the time changed, they only know what they've been taught. They've been taught, hey, use your resources well. If you've got resources, then you need to make sure that you've got X, Y, and Z in place. That way you're going to be okay. Save that. We may need that later. And that's why there's such a conflict now is because 
I'm not going to tell you that we're going to return to that, but I am going to tell you that that's why there is such a conflict of interest between the generations now, is because one generation was born in a disposable generation where if it breaks, you just go buy another one. And the other generation was born where if it broke, you better figure out a way to fix it. And even if it does break, keep it because you may find a part later on somewhere down the road to fix it. And it's too contrasted. Y'all know, y'all are the only one shaking your heads yes. So you get the- Grandparents. Sure. And so we see a, a separation of the way um, stewardship is used, right? Well, there was, uh, we were saving some stuff in the garage, and, and we were thinking about doing a yard sale at one point in time, but there were things that I know that weren't good, so it depends on what you're hoarding still. There were, some of them were movies, like Rambo or something, like, uh, they were already movies, stuff we don't even watch anymore. Right. It's like, they've been banished to the garage, and it's like, Holy Spirit got on to me, it's like, why are you even going to sell those to somebody else, or give them to somebody else, if they're bad? I'm like, okay. So sure. chucked them in the trash. And I had some comic books, too. They weren't the good ones that I gave away the first time. The Lord asked me to get rid of my comics. Mm -hmm. I could have burned them, but there were some other ones I found. And they were in there. And it's like, I could sell these and get five, ten bucks. And it's like, why? And it's like, so I threw those away. Right. And I was like, I was like all right, fine. I'll just throw them away. So you wouldn't define that as a resource, per se. No. You would define it as just something you had and that had no that use I anymore. I thought was a resource, right. but it really wasn't a resource. That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I, I want to keep moving here on this. It's a, that's a good comment. So wealth and resources are, uh, are to be used, not hoarded. Okay, so let me make sure, too, that we understand that when we start talking about wealth, and that's an easy thing to talk about, and I know everyone's going to define that a little bit differently in Western culture, okay? So for, forget your background, okay? Whether you grew up in the era where you saved everything or you grew up in the era where everything is disposable. I think the thing that we can all agree on is that the nation that we live in is a wealthy nation and that we are wealthy people by definition just because we simply live here. The fact that you have the ability to go get a job and make money, pay your bills, is wealth in and of itself. That's a big deal. So the point about resources is that God gives us not that we can take it and heap it unto ourselves. And so when I'm talking about uh, wealth not being hoarded, I'm not talking about making sure that your family's going to have food to eat. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the fact that we think it's common now if we've got three freezers full. And some of it goes bad. We think that's normal. And, and I've even had to reevaluate that myself because, I mean, I want to take care of my kids. But then I'm thinking, but I've got stuff that's spoiling. We're not using it. Somebody needs to get this before it spoils because now we're just wasting and so I've had, to re I've had to change the way that I look at how that redistri redistribution works because a lot of times we don't view that as being wealthy, but in fact it is. In fact, it's quite wealthy to have, the to have the ability to not only feed your family, but help feed other families or supply people with resources. Like if you don't, you see somebody that doesn't have something, and I'll use this as an example. You see somebody that doesn't have something, you got three of them. And you look at them and you think, you should have made better decisions, bud. <laughs> or we could give them one of the three. Why? Because we're wealthy and we have it. Give them the one of the three and say, here, you take that. That blesses your life. That helps you. I'm okay. I'm fine. And it 
it causes something to happen. Because if we're going to talk about love, and, and I don't have time to go back into all of this, but if we're going to talk about being loving as Christians, then I think one of the things that we have to get away from in this culture is you're going to have to get away from wealth. Because the wealth and the love of money thing, it's this weird, it's got this weird relationship. And we know at the core of who we are, we're a bit greedy. And I'm, I didn't say that you were a greedy person. I said at the core of like human, humanity, mm-hmm. we're a bit greedy and we're a bit kind of stuck in our way. And when we get some extra, we're like, I got it and it's mine. And I worked really hard for this, so I'm never going to let it go. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have some things in place. I'm saying you might want to reevaluate. And what is your definition of wealth and when does it end? That's a good question because I've seen this more times than, uh, than I've seen a lot of other things. Is that people will say, if I could just get to that point, I would be happy. I ain't never seen anybody happy when they got to that point. I ain't never seen it. And why? It's because they never defined what wealth was to themselves and they didn't know when to stop. I don't know if you know this or not, but in our culture, you can go as far as you want. You can take this thing as far as you want to go. And if you're driven, you can become what the world would define you as, or at least our nation would define you as, as being rich. If you so choose, you can do that. That's a wealthy nation. It's a wealthy nation if you can today change your mind and say, you know what, I'd like to be rich, and then go pursue it. And if you make the right decisions and put the things in the right place, you can actually become that by definition. But when is, when is enough enough? Mm-hmm. When do you finally draw the line and say, okay, that's enough, and I need to help somebody else because God has given me an over and abundance. Let me go, let me go Jim, and let me go back here in the back. Okay. Uh, what I was sitting here thinking about, we live in this country, and, and uh, we start thinking about retirement about. Oh, that's a good, good point. You know, yeah. And, uh, I don't know if there's any other country that that uh, you can draw retirement after you good point. start working. That's it, too. You're right. And it, there is no other this country. Is, this is set up <laughs> that when we retire, we probably won't be able to, to hold a job out uh, unless it's an office job or something like right. that. Uh, of course, I could have went ahead and worked for another probably 10 years. Sure. But... Uh, I didn't have a lot of retirement built up anyway, so, you know. That's, Jim makes a really good point. We are living in one of the only countries that actually has a retirement situation. Look around in some of the other countries. Now, what's interesting about our culture, too, though, is is that we, we talked about cancer, cancel culture lately. Well, our country doesn't do a phenomenal job of having placement for folks that would like to work in their older age. They actually, they have like a, almost like a, a, a rule that's unspoken, an unspoken rule, that once you're past a certain age, they don't have anything to do with you anyway. No, you can't work for me. No, you're liability. And so our culture has created this, this thing where you better have something in place, otherwise you're not going to have anything. And it's, it's a sad situation where other countries allow some of the older generation to continue to have a place and a part of where they want to be. Go ahead. Yeah, this scripture really hit me hard, you know, just now, because <clears throat> I, have, I have a bad habit. I think um, it's because when I was a kid, 
growing up, we didn't have food to eat. Absolutely. So sure. I can afford a lot of food. And, yeah. And um, I, it just hit me really hard. And then before when I before I got hurt, you know, we, we just whatever. We didn't have that problem. But after I got hurt, we I lost my job and everything, and we were on Danny's salary, and we didn't have that much either. Sure. And it just and now I know that we're it it does those scriptures they change you know if we look at them we see it 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 causes us to look at the world that we live in and the country we live in from a different angle mm-hmm. and um i appreciate you sharing that because i think there's a lot in uh what's being said there in in not only the lesson but the scripture i think the biggest thing is is that i was scared as a child you know coming back as an adult that we're not gonna have enough we're not gonna have enough mm-hmm. and what are we gonna so now huh, yeah. i look back and i'm like yeah, and like, and so some of that, obviously, you know, depending on where you grew up at, and you know the, you know the per capita of that area, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things that come into you know the growth, and and some people grew up in poverty areas. Um, Oklahoma uh, is considered a poverty state by all rights. It's that's what it's considered. But people define poverty differently, but they also define wealth differently. Yeah. And so you have to define that for you. You have to define what is too much and when you begin over in abundance. And then you go to God and say, what do you want me to do with this? Because if I keep it, then it, it's just going to stay here and nothing's going to happen with it. It's just going to sit in my garage or it's just going to sit somewhere and it's going to either take on, it's going to decay, right? Who can I give this to to further and bless someone else? Because obviously if I'm not using it, it's of no use. It's not moving anything. Well... I was in the same situation, except for it wasn't when I was a kid. It was when I, after I got married. Mm-hmm. Um, my ex-husband wouldn't work. He thought he hardly go to school. Didn't have no money coming in, but what I brought in. So I, as a grown-up, I had to provide for him and him. He was starving, and I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. So as I grew up and had my kids, sure, I hoarded food. Yep. So, you know, and when Waylon's like, why do we buy all this food? I'm like, well, I starved when I was younger. Right, absolutely. So now that as we did this and as our kids grew up, it just, mm-hmm. you see the kids trying to provide for themselves. We provided for the kids. Come home, here's you some food. Don't you ever go hungry. We have abundant right. food. We did that for the kids. We did it for my sister. Mm-hmm. And now he sees... If the kids are going to starve, don't you, you know, he told me, don't you ever starve. We have food. And he didn't go to him up to food and take off. So he understood what I would, why I bought so much food. Mm-hmm. So we fed the kids. Distri- yeah, you were distributing. Distributing, very good. Because they would come home hungry. We don't have, you know, Marissa, she didn't know how to provide for herself. And he would send her home some food. Sure. So he understood why I bought so much food. Right, instead of, instead of. For Keeping it, yeah. you're spreading it. That's good. Let me let me let me continue on because I ain't even made it out of section one yet. <laughs> Jesus also instructed his followers to gain friends for themselves, so that when worldly wealth fails and it inevitably will, I, I, our wealth is dependent on a on a pretty fine tuned system. If you've ever looked at the economy and looked at what floats this thing, it's really set on a really fine line, 
and uh, world trade and all these other things. This is why America, uh, you hear a lot about bringing jobs back to America. Why do you want to bring jobs back to America? Because it shores up the economy of the nation. I, we don't necessarily, it should never have necessarily a problem doing business with other countries, but not at the expense of the wealth and the taking care of your own people. So that's why they brought jobs back to America. And so it's like really fine-tuned. And so can it fail? Yes, it can. Even though you haven't seen it in your generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of you remember uh, Black Friday. Am I saying that correctly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Black Friday, collapse of the economy. We know that by, most of us know that by history books and just what we've read. Others have actually seen that. And so could that happen again? Well, sure. People have lived through that. People lived through the Great Depression. People live through these really hard and, and difficult times. And so, inevitably, wealth can fail. It says, they would have secured eternal dwellings. Jesus went on to teach about stewardship of the true riches of God's kingdom. Wealth is in this world, wealth in this world ought to be used for the purposes of God's kingdom. Now, that adds a totally different hitch to the way that we think. Uh -huh. Because often we unpack that and we just separate them. Wealth of the world uh, it has nothing to do with wealth of the kingdom. Well, actually it does. And the reason that we are wealthy, um, we might consider being in that position or being put in that position is because maybe we have been called to be distributors. I read a book one time and I cannot remember the name of the book or even the guy who wrote it. Um, he was talking about the church as a body, not just in this nation, but all over the world. And he was talking about the placement of America in the distributing of the gospel and why it's so imperative that, that America be a part of missionary work. You think, well, why? Why do we have to be a part of it? Because we're rich. That's why. And because no one else has the ability to actually spread the gospel from a financial standpoint in the entire world except for us. No. That's why. And you say... Well, I guess that is pretty important. Yeah, well, then he goes on to give statistics that even though we are a part of that, we're only given like 3 or 4% of our resources of this entire country to missionary work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've heard pastors say it before, we're the leading missionary providers for the world, and we're only given 3%. So where does that put everyone else at? That's a, you think that's a bad situation? Mm -hmm. But that's why it's imperative that we use our resources to further the gospel. Because if we're not going to do it, who else is going to do it? Yeah. We're the only ones that are here to do it. We've got lots of hands up. Who, who had their... Go ahead. Well, mine's quick. I just, when I started college and I, I knew that I was going to have a career out of my degree, I would always think, oh, well, whenever I have my job, then I can do this for people. And it's like a click that when I started getting really into oh, that's my good work, point. Yep. I don't need wealth to be a good person. I can be a good person right now. Right. And I good don't point. need to have an abundance of money. I can help somebody right now by just giving them something, giving them food, buying something for somebody, seeing somebody on the side of the road, giving them $5. Mm -hmm. That's not going to yep. put me in debt right. just giving something that I have at the time. And so I kind of had to get out of that mindset of, oh, well, years down the road, then I can do this stuff. No, I can do it right now. Good point. And, and, and if, she, if she's talking also from a perspective too, she said, I can do these things now. There are people in other countries that cannot do these things now. Amen. They don't have the ability to give the $5 or, or, or whatever the act actually is or to feed somebody. They're all struggling. 
There are not, of course, I'm talking about poverty-based third world countries, but you might be thinking that everyone else is, is just perfectly civilized and lives just like you, and that's not true. I don't care what country it is. Nobody lives like you. No. Nobody does. Uh, Jim, go ahead, and then I'm gonna, I gotta keep going. The majority of the United States and probably the world uh, and I've heard people say it well the government owes me this I, the government owes <laughs> yeah. me you know, they can do this they're supposed to do this Yeah. well uh, not really they don't owe us anything right no and the, most people will say well God you know, God said, you know, God owes me this for do you know, he's supposed to do this for me. Mm -hmm. No matter what I do, he's supposed to do it for me. Yeah. Well, well he's not. No. A bit of self entitlement, I, I think. Just like the and don't don't let yourself get fooled about the government of the United States because if you think the government's gonna take care of you one of these days, yeah. You're gonna be you're gonna be in bad shape. Well, I'll say this. Truth be told, the people run the government anyway. Well, That's I just think the, they do anyway. Well, I'm, I'm talking, the government doesn't actually have rule. They are there only to govern the laws that have been created by um, the, the people and, and to enforce uh, the Constitution. Um, the, if we are looking at governmental t entities to take care of us, then we've forgotten the role of where the people belong and where government belongs. Yeah. Government doesn't belong over people, people belong over government. Like or we're said, it, to, to the point of who rules. Like you said a few weeks ago, our children and grandchildren are going to pay for it. Yes. What, what this is all come down to. Yes, absolutely. All right, so let me keep moving. Our economic pursuits in this life must always be tempered by our awareness that worldly wealth is not permanent but temporal. Wise use is always to invest it in projects that are, in, uh, that are eternal in value and not subject to loss. I always had thought about that, you know, from a... I always thought, you know, the scripture, lay up your treasures in heaven. And we take that from a generalized standpoint, meaning concentrate and focus on, on uh, doing things that have eternal value. And I thought about this one day, and I just wondered. I'm not saying God told me this. I'm saying this was just me kind of hashing some things out and weighing some things. And I was weighing some things, and I thought, but what if that is true, though? What if it's literal true? What if I pass from this life, I can get up there, and he's like, okay, let's see how much wealth you've accumulated. What? Wait a second. No, there's no, there's no economy here. Oh, yeah, there is. I told you that you laid up your treasures in heaven. Let me show you what you've, what you've gotten. And now this is how, this is what you have here. Like, ooh, I didn't really think about that, so now I'm stuck eternally with what I saved down here. So, I don't know, I'm just, I weighed that. I thought, hmm. Lay up my treasures in heaven. Maybe he really means that. Maybe that's something for us to really consider and to think about. Anyway, that's just me having fun. Okay, let's go to part two. We got some time. I'm going to go to about five after. I'm gonna... Turning the other cheek. How many of you have heard that before? Turn the other cheek? Oh, yeah. All right, good. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presented the new ethic of the kingdom of God, one based on love and internal motivations of the heart. This ethic, if met, will surpass the demand of the law. In the ancient world, cruelty was common when it, was, it came to retaliation. 
Most people are familiar with the expression, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This ensured that the punishment would fit the crime rather than being too harsh. Jesus' ethics exceeds that standard by teaching non-retaliation when one is personally wronged. Okay, so the first thing I want to say, too, is that it's not what we think. When we start thinking about retaliation, we've always been taught that, right? You're not supposed to retaliate. If somebody comes at you, you're not supposed to go back at them, okay? I agree with that, making sure you and I don't have vengeful hearts, right? We, vengeful, vengeful hearts is wrong, but standing for what is right is good. Can we agree with that? Amen. I think you're going to see this in turning the other cheek. It says, the teachings Jesus gave of someone being struck on the right cheek, uh, Matthew 5.39, deals with personal insult or injury. A slap to the right cheek would most often be done by the use of a backhand of the right, a back of the right hand, a gesture of grave insult. Okay. Mark my spot. John, come here. Yeah, I knew it was coming. I was like, yeah. Don't hate him. I want to give you an example. All right, now face him. Face him. Okay. The thing that I want you to think about, though, is the very specific scripture. Because what we often fail to see is that when he's talking about uh, striking the right cheek, we are actually talking about something that originated in their culture. That's a culture thing. You've heard me been talking about this a lot lately. We've got to understand the context of the culture. So when it says that if you're being struck on the right cheek, that you should turn and give it your left also. Now, no demonstration. <laughs> the way that it worked was to insult somebody at top level, to really, really insult them. You hit the right cheek with the right hand, and it was the back of it. So it was, you know, you really wanted to put them down. You slap like this, okay? You come across, that was the insult. Now, the Bible said, the Jesus, Jesus said, I want you to, once that happens, I want you to turn and give them your left. Now, here's the catch with the culture. You did not touch anybody with your left hand. Look at the Jewish culture. You did not touch with your left hand. Left hands were designed for something else. So if I turn, if he turns to give me his left, I can't actually strike him. Because the right cheek means something but guess what the left cheek means something too so in western culture we look at that and we look at that as um passiveness passivity oh jesus is saying that if i if i get struck by somebody on the on the right cheek i should turn and give my left and they can hit that one also well in the culture no that's not what was being said at all sit down <laughs> you can sit down that's not actually what was being said at all. Culture said you are not allowed to strike anyone with the left hand. To turn the other cheek was to surprise the insulter, saying nonviolently, you are treating me as an unequal. That's what that means. So to turn the cheek and to give them their left didn't mean passivity. It didn't mean go ahead and run me over with your, your other hit too. No. Actually, it was saying something, and this is what Jesus was saying in the context of that culture. You're treating me as an unequal, nonviolently. So what's he saying? I'm standing up for what's right. You've treated me wrong. You've done me wrong. That's why I'm giving you the left cheek. If you're slapped on the cheek 
of inferiority, right cheek, turn the cheek of equal dignity, left cheek. Meaning, you need to treat me better. It's actually now, when you dig into that, you actually find that it's quite opposite. He was saying, you don't retaliate with a vengeful heart, but you let them know you're wrong for doing that. That's different, church. That's different than what we've, we've learned. Why? Because it's in the context of the culture. If we understand the context of the culture and what was actually being said by right cheek, left cheek, right hand, left hand, study that. The significance of the right hand, the significance of the left hand, what it means to be slapped with the right hand. And, and, and also, the back of the hand. We were thinking, a slap. He literally was a slap. You didn't, not, a, not a closed-fisted punch. That's a fight. This is an insult. Back of the hand. Slap, right cheek. There's so much in that. There's so many things that are being said to us. So in Western culture, though, when we read it in this context, we say, right cheek, left cheek. Okay. That just means if he, if he hits me, then I'm supposed to... Give him the left cheek and let him hit that also. No, that's not what that means. Not in that context. Not meaning, not meaning um, you should uh, let people continue to abuse you, continue to pe let people run over you, continue to let people take advantage of you. No, that's not what that means. But often, this is being used by abused wives, by abused husbands, by people that have been in bad relationships. And they say, well, God just wants me to stay right here. I don't know. You might want to take a look at that again. You might want to go back and actually look at it in the right context, and you'll find out that he says, no, actually what I want you to do is demand equality and demand to be treated equal, demand to be treated better. You've disrespected me. The, the crime is not saying anything at all. That's the crime. You're saying if you do this to the right, you do the left. Uh, and I don't have time to go into the whole scripture base because um, I think it was right after that he said if um, if he asks for a coat, give me your tunic too or something like that. Yeah. I mean, if it, research that and you'll find that the theme is still the same. It's exactly the same. He's talking about rights and, and being equal. He's not talking about letting people take from you what is yours. And that's... At times that puts Christians at odds because they read one scripture and, and God says, you know, he talks about standing up for yourself and defending yourself and the next minute we're turning our cheeks and letting people hit us. I'm confused. What does this mean? Got to understand it from a cultural context. And then it, make, it just makes more sense. Okay. Um, where's that? Um, uh, third paragraph. Yep. Let's go to third paragraph. Uh, the teaching Jesus gave of someone being struck on the right cheek Deals with personal injury. A slap to the right cheek would often uh, be done by the use of a back of the right hand, a gesture of grave insult. Jesus taught that his people should adopt the ethic not only of non-retaliation, but one that goes beyond the prescribed that prescribed by the law. When Jesus was interrogated, he was mostly si uh, silent, fulfilling Isaiah. I will say that I didn't really like the way that the lesson uh, talks about this particular topic. It actually doesn't really go into any of this. So if you, by chance, you don't believe me, and that's fine, you go do your homework yourself. You go look up uh, the Jewish law, and you go up look as why they used their right hand and why they didn't use their left hand, and they were picky about it. Left hand was for other stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were they were it was a real serious deal. 
So if you if you think, eh, I don't know about that tenor, I kind of like the old way it was taught. Well, just you go look for yourself. You don't have to believe me. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. However, there are some exceptions. When Jesus was on trial, the high priest asked him what he could, uh, what he had openly taught. Mm -hmm. He answered, "Ask those who heard me." The official struck him for what was perceived to be disrespect. Jesus challenged the hypocrisy of punishing him without evidence. Later, Paul testified to his innocence, and, and the high priest ordered him to be struck. Paul replied with an accusation that he later recanted upon learning that he was speaking to the high priest. Thus, Paul demonstrated that we must exercise biblical discretion when speaking on our own defense. But here's the thing. The fact is, is that they spoke. At the right time, in the right place, they both stood for what was right. And Jesus, what Jesus was doing, he was, he was, he was basically saying, you're putting me on trial without any evidence. That's what you're doing. And so, is that wrong though? Is it wrong for me to stand up and to call out what's wrong as a Christian? Absolutely not. You need to. And if you're not calling it out, then we're doing the wrong thing. If we're cowering down, thinking that we're just going to give them the other cheek and just go ahead and let them hit that one too, we're just wrong. We're, we're, we're scripturally wrong in doing this. We think that the... Um, the view of a Christian should be one that does not attack. No, I think you shouldn't attack. I think you should defend. Jesus, Jesus, your defender. He's my defender. Now he never he never attacked anybody. He defended. Therefore, you should be a good defender. You should be really good at that. Well, there's a shoe company I won't even mention right now because I'm done with them. Uh, but uh, they've done some stuff in the past that were kind of shady, and I still dibble dabbled around with them. Still purchase their products but they've now released a shoe that's just straight up nuts nike yes that's okay i'll say it yeah go ahead <laughs> and i'm with yeah, you i'm even tempted to go get my nike shirts and just go burn it and be like yep if yep. i still had facebook and i was on there right now i would post this and let you see yeah that i'm burning your stuff because i'm down I'm, I'm no longer going to purchase you. your stuff anymore we actually were talking about it on the way here yeah this morning that's good okay let me go down to the final paragraph bottom of the page um, and let me wrap this thing up. Romans and First Peter help explain what Jesus meant uh, regarding retaliation. God has provided governing authorities to protect the innocent and punish evildoers. Their authority is delegated to them by God, and they are ultimately accountable to him. In Romans 13, 1-4, Paul spoke to Christians about their obligations to the secular state. Peter provided further light on this in defining a central role of government. Punish wrongdoers and commend those who do right. Truly, Scripture informs our daily living in practical ways. You've heard, well, I said this recently, practical Christianity, right? Practical Christianity, that's very important. Scripture informs our daily living in practical ways, reminding us of the value of living at peace with others and with those in authority. Yes, as you should strive to live in peace with others, you should, but not at the expense of what we're being told about standing for what is right. That's where you draw the line. And if it's right, then you stand there and you don't move. And regardless of what government authorities think or regardless of all these other things, he's telling us, stand for what's right. You're not doing a wrong thing. You're not abusing the kingdom. You're not upsetting uh, the flow of Christianity by standing up and saying, hey, I just wanted to let y'all know that's wrong. You ain't supposed to, you ain't supposed to hit. You ain't supposed to steal, you ain't supposed to kill, you ain't supposed to destroy. And I'm not, as a Christian, I'm not about to let sit here and let you do it. I'm out of time, guys. God bless you guys. Thank you.